0: Do you think of a sunrise as a snapshot? I have always felt a slight annoyance at pictures of sunrises and sunsets. Don't get me wrong, I love them. I've taken countless pictures of these beautiful events, but I still feel that something is not right about a picture of the sun as it breaks the horizon. This morning it occurred to me what the annoyance is about. A sunrise is not a snapshot. A sunrise is dynamic and wonderful. A sunrise moves. A snapshot Does not move. A sunrise must be watched carefully or missed. It only takes a few moments to see the earth spin the sun into view. Every second, something changes in the light of a sunrise. Colors change. The angle of the light on the clouds changes. The temperature of the air around the viewer changes. Quite often, a breeze accompanies the sunrise. Warm air expanded by the early morning sun pushes against the cooler air of the night. The sunrise dances. It can no more be captured by film than a symphony could be understood by a single note. Hey, listen to this. I captured this chord in the middle of the third movement. Wasn't that just great? Wow, what a beautiful symphony. No, that's messed up. We all recognize that. A snapshot of a sunrise is a blap. Sure, a picture can be pretty. Perhaps a single chord can be pretty too, but it will never capture the full effect. There's so much to a sunrise... At first, the stars seem to be dimmer. Then the sky is slightly less black to the east. A glow begins to surround the viewer as diffracted and refracted light arrives on the scene. The stars disappear. Then there's a purple light in the sky to the east. Purple becomes blue and blue becomes almost white. To the west, the sky is still black. Then the colors arrive, splashing against the undersides of the patchy clouds. First violet, then pink, then red orange, and yellow. It is fully light now, and the sky is a rich blue to the west. To the east, the sky is on fire. I squint my eyes as the first sliver of the sun screams over the horizon. The light is brilliant now. The colors all around me turn golden. Soon, the sun is an oversized red ball of fire sitting on the ground. The illusion is that this ball will roll over the earth, melting everything in its path. It's going to rush toward me. But instead, it lifts off the earth and begins to climb into the sky. Still, it looks so heavy. I worry that the cables lifting it will break and that it will tumble down. But there are no cables. It looks lighter now and brighter. A moment later, I can no longer look toward it. But my closed eyes feel its warmth cast from 93 million miles away. It licks my skin and I laugh. What a show. The promise of a new day. Sometimes I wish I could race around the earth at a thousand miles per hour running in front of the sunrise or chasing the sunset. Have you ever stopped to realize that of all the countless sunrises and sunsets that we experience, there has actually only been one sunrise and one sunset since this planet coagulated in front of the sun? The sunrise is billions of years old and it has been sweeping tirelessly around the globe. I glimpse it As it shoots past, I lose sight of it, but it never ends. To my small mind, the sunrise and sunset seem almost eternal. How many more years will the race around the globe continue? I can't wait until tomorrow so I can taste it again. Chapter 4 The Seasons at 8240 Summer We moved to our small house in the woods in July. It was a hot summer for Colorado. Denver had high temperatures in the upper 90s from time to time. The lack of humidity makes these temperatures much more bearable, so much so, in fact, that many homes in the city do not have air conditioners. Usually the evenings are cool and misery is limited to the hot midday and afternoons. Still, upper 90s is upper 90s, and I'm not particularly fond of hot weather. I was quite surprised shortly after moving to 8240 by the temperature spread between downtown and our new house on the mountain. Leaving work at 5, I found the Denver Air to still be rather ovenish, and the air conditioner in my truck just could not seem to keep up. The drive home took almost an hour, and by the time I reached our shady drive, I was overheated. I traveled from the front door to the bedroom where my slacks and shirt were traded for a pair of shorts. I lay down to rest in front of an open window. Within a couple of minutes, I found myself pulling a thick blanket over my bare skin. It was actually too cold to lie in the shade. By August, we were building a fire in the wood stove in the evenings to drive out the chill. I could not be happier. The cool, crisp air is revitalizing. The average day in the heat of the summer at our new house starts at sunrise with temperatures in the 50s. As the sun warms the earth, the temperature climbs quickly. By the time I head to work around 7, the thermometer will read between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. In the heat of the day, temperatures may reach a bit over 80 degrees for an hour or so. Then the whole process reverses itself. Weather not only comes through Colorado, it also forms here. This creates a wonderful weather pattern in the mountains that adds a refreshing mix to the climate. As the air over the peaks heats up and rises, it loses pressure. This lower pressure causes water vapor to condense into clouds, and the sun is eclipsed. Soon, big drops of rain begin to coat the ground. The showers usually reach our house at 8240 around 3 or 4 in the afternoon. Some weeks, one could almost set a watch by the coming of the rain. These showers are short-lived and usually don't spill much water. But the brief shower keeps the flowers bright and satisfied. It also drops the temperature sharply. When hiking in the hills, these showers can usually be weathered by standing under a dense tree for 10 minutes or so. I recall when I was 10 years old and my family was in Colorado on vacation that we huddled under a big pine as one such storm raged through. I remember vividly the excitement in my father's voice as he joked and laughed about the freak storm. Thunder shook us as we waited for the rain to stop. The air was left charged and alive. Soon the sun returned, and steam filled the air like wispy ghosts rising from the earth. After such a storm, the air smells so fresh, and the rain extracts new aromas from the vegetation. This is just one example of the fact that weather not only comes through Colorado, it forms here. The mountains often create their own weather, and as such... One can never really be sure what to expect. I've been snowed on while climbing at altitude during every month of the year, including July and August. The July snowflakes are more like tiny snow pellets. They pelt everything like soft sleet. These storms resemble dry rain more than snow. This dry rain can pack a horrible punch in the form of unexpected lightning. I have felt the hair on my arms and legs stand straight out, and I've heard charges buzzing in my felt hat as lightning struck nearby. Once on Mount Evans, I stood below the clouds yet above the area where the lightning was blasting the ground. It was a frightening experience to watch this powerful show from above its terminus. Another time, I had climbed up to about 12,000 feet under a crystal clear blue sky, I stood on the mountain watching a tiny little cloud head across a broad valley towards me. This cloud passed directly overhead and suddenly began firing half-inch-sized hail on my head, neck, and shoulders. I was above the tree line with no shelter. There was nothing to do but to stand there and take the worst the storm could throw. But the hail was not the worst. Without warning, a lightning bolt hit the ground less than 50 yards away. The thunderclap was enough to shake one's insides... I found myself lying flat on the ground, shaking. I'm still not sure whether I leapt to the ground or fell there from the shock of the event. No sooner had this storm hit the peak than it was gone. There was no more thunder to be heard, and the clear blue sky returned as if to mock me for being so foolish. The summers at 8240 can best be described as pleasant, but short. My wife Anne wisely told me once that a really good slideshow ends leaving the audience wanting more. This appetite is due to the length of the slideshow as much as to the quality of the viewing. The summers at 8240 certainly follow this rule. I was raised in a farming community in Oklahoma. Naturally, springtime for me includes a deep urge to get dirt under my fingernails and to scatter seeds in tidy little rows. Summer in Oklahoma is all about fresh tomatoes, lettuce, radishes, mustard greens, and corn. Not at 8240. The summer is so short that tomatoes are pretty much out of the question. Some of the lettuces and tubers can thrive at 8240, but the plants with longer growing seasons are frozen pre-pubescent. The ecosystems in Colorado vary fantastically. Flora and fauna change with altitude, and the mountains block entire weather systems while funneling others into tight, concentrated events. One side of a mountain range will be lush and cool, While just a few miles away on the other side, the terrain is bare, the air is hot, and the few plants that survive are of the desert variety. Travel just a short distance, and suddenly the ecosystem will change again. A friend of mine, who had only recently moved to Colorado, noted another smaller-scaled phenomenon. He called me on his cell phone as he drove through the peaks. Why is it? he asked that on one side of a ridge there are trees, and on the other side only sagebrush and sand. This effect actually has little to do with the mountains blocking the weather, and one would need to spend a winter here for the answer to be apparent. Why is it that avalanches come down predominantly on the northern and eastern slopes, was my reply. In the winter, the sun travels through the southern sky. Slopes with southern exposure receive the most energy from the sun, and as a result, the snow on these slopes either melts or consolidates quickly. Add to that, the prevailing westerlies tend to push the snow from the western slopes to the eastern slopes, and the end result is that soft snow accumulates on the northern and eastern slopes. This translates to more spring snowmelt on these sides of the mountains, as well as a higher avalanche potential in the winter. In Colorado's semi-arid high climate, this difference in moisture is enough to make or break the survival of water-dependent plants. The balance of latitude and altitude in the Rockies creates weather and scenery that is truly unique. The Himalayas are taller. They dig into the sky, and the sky alters and limits their flora and fauna. In contrast, the Appalachians are lower, older, and rounder. As such, these peaks are lush with forest and dense undergrowth. The Rockies tend to run the spectrum from the lush forests of lower regions all the way to the high-altitude tundra of the Himalayas. As the ecosystems vary from lower to higher, so does the weather. One beautiful aspect of summer weather in the Rockies is the simultaneous existence of at least three distinct seasons. 8240 does have true summer, albeit short. But climb a little higher and summer gives way to a region that never quite escapes spring. Cool temperatures at altitude keep the flora blooming from July until fall hits in August. And never gets truly hot at these altitudes and the plant and animal life is always colorful and vibrant. Hiking beyond the spring zone leads one into a world of perpetual winter. Sure, there are endless varieties of tiny flowers and this elevation can be very green, but plants grow less than five inches high. There are no trees. Wiry plants weather scores of years growing only fractions of an inch. This is a result of thin air cold temperatures, and harsh winds. The wind screams most days. As it compresses between the peaks, it picks up sand and pebbles and blasts the landscape into surreal sculptures. At the tops of the high peaks, it's almost always quite cold. Even during the hottest days of the year, snow is common. Freezing temperatures visit this domain nightly throughout the summer months, and the snow does not melt entirely before early fall storms pile additional layers on top of the countless annual deposits. If summer supports the three simultaneous seasons, fall, spring, and winter tend to blend into one. This morning, it's still spring at 8240. The date is June 13th. Last night, a strong wind awoke me as it whipped the ponderosas and the lodge poles into a frenzy a cold front was pushing south. I looked out the large window in a room at the moon, waning toward third quarter. Will there be snow in the morning? The break of dawn did not reveal snow. It did, however, call me out of bed to see a brilliant fiery red sunrise. Red in the morning, sailor's warning. Harsher weather was imminent. At lunchtime, I was down in the plains near my office watching dark clouds boil. My cell phone rang. Lydia, my young daughter, informed me with excitement that it was indeed snowing at 8240. The early flowers of spring had been blooming for less than two weeks. Now they lie bent under this icy blast. Interesting. Summer officially starts in a week and a day, on the 21st this year. In about a week, we will experience the day with the longest period of sunlight. Still, it snows. I do not expect to see snow again until August. Hey, we have a new sponsor on the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm excited about this one. I've been wondering for a long time when active technology was going to be incorporated with clothing to do cool things. And here's an example. This is Action Heat. Action Heat is a line of clothing that actually weaves heating elements into the clothes. It works similarly to how a car seat is heated except that it runs off a little rechargeable battery pack. And this battery pack can last up to 12 hours on a charge. It can also recharge your cell phone or other devices, so it's multi-purpose. And they have all kinds of options here. Hats, they have jackets, they have shirts, they have socks, they have gloves. They even have undergarments like long johns. Man, they will keep you cozy from head to toe. I can see using this motorcycle riding riding up the lift at the ski area, watching a ball game. Anytime I need that little extra boost of heat, this stuff really fits the bill. So Action Heat, you can get it at action-heat.com forward slash adventure. Please do use the forward slash adventure for two reasons. For one, that's how they know that you heard about them from us. For two, it saves you 15%. So how cool is that? Your holiday shopping is done. All you have to do is go to action-heat.com
1: forward slash adventure. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180TAC.com.
0: Another day, I notice the herbs, long suppressed by winter, are active once again. I don't feign to be a botanist, but I do enjoy studying useful and edible wild plants. Our small acreage has a wonderful variety of such. Down below the driveway, wild roses grow. Their light-colored flowers don't really look like domesticated roses at all, but they do have a delightful simplicity. And the rose hips are rich in vitamin C. Along the edge of the dog's fence, is a steep place where thistles thrive. One would not dare trail barefooted there, but the stalks of the thistles have a delightful taste that's similar to that of a cucumber, only sweeter. Back by the woodpile, over in the rocks north of the house, and under our juniper tree, are wild raspberries. They make just enough berries to sample as I walk by. In August, I take my young children down to the creek where a healthy patch of raspberries thrives. We collect enough berries to make raspberry pancakes and perhaps a very small pie. Then there are the wax currants that grow near the base of several ponderosas. Some years they are loaded with mild flavored berries. These would make a gentle jelly, but taste almost bland raw. Behind the house and the road, there is a sizable patch of mountain cranberries. This low evergreen ground cover produces tiny dry berries They taste something like a domesticated cranberry and can be used to make a sharp jelly. I have plans to use this low ground cover along the rock retaining wall I'm building. Long runners allow the cranberry plants to seek out rich earth between the rocks. Their green leaves will be welcome in winter. Of course, dandelions proliferate here as they do everywhere. I do not really consider them to be a weed, but rather a useful herb whose energy should be channeled. I pull the dandelions out of our walkway and keep them from driving out other species of plants. Having grown up in Oklahoma, I know the value of good greens boiled for several minutes and then savored with a touch of vinegar or pepper sauce. These dandelions taste as wonderful as mustard, turnips, spinach, Swiss chard, or any other green. There is a variety of wild sage that grows in several places around the property. I've not used it as food, but from time to time... I'll wrap a bundle of it with strands of cordage I make from yucca spines, and I hang it to dry. The bundles smell wonderful, and when lit, provide a rich, fragrant incense. Various Native American peoples have long used this sage for religious ceremonies. The smoke is used as part of a blessing to drive away evil. I know that I feel blessed to enjoy its strong, earthy aroma. The juniper needles also provide a delightful smell when allowed to burn. Natives also use this plant similarly to the sage. Our juniper tree grows next to our deck and has been incorporated into many of our family activities. It holds our thermometer deep in its shade. It has been decorated with lights during the holiday season. My son called it his tinkle tree. It played an important role when at the age of two, Caleb would hide behind it as he learned his potty training skills. A close Cherokee and Omaha friend of mine has also honored the tree with the ceremonial water from his water drum. I'm thankful for this powerful juniper. It blesses our family. There are also several low juniper bushes on the property. I've been told that their berries have been used to make gin, but I've never confirmed it. I do know that these bushes disappear under a blanket of white in October, not to be seen again until May. I wonder what it is like to spend the entire winter under snow. The bushes seem none the worse for wear in the spring. Perhaps they're better off with the insulating snow sheltering them. Some edible plants don't really see as much use from me. For instance, the inner bark of the pine trees can be dried and then ground into a flower. I've never considered killing a ponderosa for a few ounces of flour. However, the pine has many less intrusive uses. I use their newer pine needles to make a tart tea that's high in vitamin C. In the spring, their new growth buds are quite palatable. I've heard that some people make candies from these by crystallizing sugar around them. I think they taste good enough straight off the tree. Additionally, pine sap, boiled down and mixed with a little ash from a fire, makes a useful epoxy. When the pine beetles kill a tree, I harvest it for wood. I find myself spending much effort on pruning and maintaining the forest around our home. I must do this to mitigate fire danger, but I also want to encourage healthy growth among our trees. Between dwarf mistletoe and pine beetles, the fight for a healthy forest has become a summer ritual. There are countless other plants and herbs that I have yet to learn. Mullen, for instance, has medicinal applications but should not be considered food. Scrubby maple bushes certainly must have some useful characteristics. They are too small to tap for their sweet sap. There are several edible species of mushrooms that grow in our forest, but I dare not sample these without guidance of an expert. Other flora I have simply not yet identified. Summer is a season for enjoying these plants, and the biodiversity is the key. Some who move to the mountains mow down this rich mix of mountain plants and replace them with simple grass. That is tragic in the natural sense. I watched the deer feeding in our yard. They're quite selective. They know the plants better than we do, and they seem to seek out a variety in their salad. I'm sure that this variety is critical for their overall health. It's also interesting to see the deer drift through the yard as they eat. They take a bite here and another over there, but they keep drifting as they harvest. They do not wipe out entire colonies of plants. They leave most of the plants behind to grow into future feasts. There is wisdom among the deer. The deer know that biodiversity is critical to their health. It is critical for the health of the entire ecosystem. Each animal has its unique niche. When we destroy the plants on which a mouse survives, we also destroy the mouse. This impacts the fox, lynx, falcon, and coyote. If we destroy the mouse but leave the plants, then the health of the fauna is compromised. The mouse is no longer there to garden and to harvest. Biodiversity is compromised and other species suffer. The balance of the ecosystem is fragile. Why do humans claim license to destroy this balance? We can live within the balance if we try, and the entire biosphere benefits, including Homo sapiens.
1: Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast and this bonus episode of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for another chapter. Please be sure to leave us a comment on our website at adventuresportspodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Don't forget, you can also help to keep the show going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. A lot of work goes into this show. We can certainly use your help to keep the great interviews coming. Until the next time, get out and have some fun.